0: Point in our service, our uh, cactus campus on North Phoenix, as well as our venue across this campus, our chapel next door, and then even today we started a new venue, uh, not ongoingly, but for Easter Sunday in the high school room. They all join us uh, for the next segment of our time together. And, you know, it's fascinating that many of you are visiting here today because it's Easter and we're thrilled that you're here. I've been the uh, senior pastor here. I think this is my 11th Easter at Scottsdale Bible Church. And I remember about 10 years ago when I uh, did my first Easter service here, we at that time had five services regularly and then also on Easter This weekend, we now have 17 uh, services here in our campus and our other campus. And, you know, 10 years ago, I did my uh, five services on Easter, and then uh, a couple weeks later, I was driving home from church, and I stopped at Baskin-Robbins. Y'all remember Baskin-Robbins? Yeah. I got to stop going there, but I I stopped there and uh, got myself an ice cream cone. I lived north of here, and there was a sweet little gal behind the counter, and she said, I know you. I know you you're the pastor at the church should I go to and I said well if it's Scottsdale Bible yeah that's me and she said I love going to that church I've been going there for years and and trying to make small talk I said to her you know five services I said which service do you go to and she looked at me and said Easter (laughs) it was the best answer I've ever heard and I and so I said to her what, you know, a minister said to me years ago when I was a kid, he reminded us that we do have services between now and next Easter, and uh, you're welcome back any And so that's our message to you guys if you're visiting with us today. Thrilled that you're here, and uh, I think you're going to be glad you came with uh, what we're going to talk about now, and you're welcome back any We always want to be a church home for you. So uh, I always do one thing before I speak, and that is that I pray briefly but pointedly. So would you just do me the honor of bowing and we'll pray and then we'll dive right in. God, our Father, we're grateful for this day, for Easter Sunday, that we celebrate uh, something that the Christian church has been celebrating for 2,000 years, this resurrection of Jesus Christ. We want to talk about what that means today, Father. So I pray that as Jesus prayed so often that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have revealed to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we say together, amen. So as I was thinking about Easter over the last couple of weeks and what we wanted to talk about here today, the thought that kept coming back to me is that, you know, out of 350 million people in the United States, I would submit that the vast majority of Americans still know what Easter is about. Could we all agree with that? I mean, we do live in a post-Christian, increasingly secular society, that's a given, but there is still 350,000 churches in the United States, that's a known fact, and many people still would remember, if not know, what Easter is about. If you ask the average person, what is Easter about, they would say the resurrection of Jesus. That it's about a man who came to this earth and lived a sinless life and taught people all about God and then made some outrageous claims of being from the Father and going back to the Father. Eventually, he was put to death for these claims, only to rise from the grave three days later and ascend to heaven. That's the Easter claim, and I think that's what a lot of people would be able to parrot, at least from their upbringing, that that's what Easter is about. And as I thought about it, again, over the last couple of weeks, I thought, you know, what I want to do this year is take this idea of a resurrection a step further, and I want you and I to wrestle with what it means, what it means, and I mean specifically what it means for you, because we all know that it's one thing to know a claim about something. It's another thing to know the implications It's one thing to know the what about a situation. It's another thing to know the why. And we've all had experiences where just having mere factual knowledge is not enough. We want the gaps filled in on what it means. Probably the great example would be marriage. If you came up to me after today's message and introduced yourself to me and said, my name is so-and-so and I'm married and left it at that, that wouldn't tell me all that much meaningful about you. Lots of people are married. But conversely, if you came up to me and said, I'm so-and-so and and I'm married and this is my wife or husband, we've been married for 14 years, we have two beautiful kids and we're more in love today than we've ever been, now that would tell me something, right? Because you just told me what it means for you. My point is a lot of Americans can say Easter's about the resurrection. I'm not sure we've really wrestled with what it means For us today. That's what I want us to do in our time remaining. And to help us with this quest, I want us to look at one passage. We're gonna keep it real simple today. One passage from the Bible, and it's not from the Gospels. Usually, when we talk about the resurrection, we look at one of the four Gospel accounts. But today we're going to look at a passage that was written way after the resurrection occurred, about 30 or 40, even 50 years after the resurrection. It's found in one of Paul the Apostle's epistles, and he's musing, he's thinking about the resurrection in hindsight, and he's trying to answer the question that you and I have before us today on what it means. So let's read it together. You can just follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 to 20, and try to follow his logic here. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith, your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. He goes on to say, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith, there it is again, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, In answering the query, uh, what the resurrection means, uh, I want you to notice with me three things the Bible affirms about the resurrection of Jesus here. Three things that it tells us about the resurrection that might clue us in to the fact that there is more than it seems. And I just warn you, the first thing I'm going to share with you right now is going to encourage the socks off of you. Even if you don't believe yet, even if you're not quite there, this is going to tempt you, this is going to kind of wet your whistle. It's going to give you some thirst because here's the first thing that this passage tells us. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus means that second chances are possible in this life. Many people don't talk about this enough. The resurrection of Jesus means that second chances are possible in this life. And you're saying, well, where is that found in that passage? Well, look again at verse 17. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are, here it is, still in your sins. So follow his logic here. He's simply saying that if there was no resurrection, he's playing kind of like the devil's advocate here. If there was no resurrection, then guess what? Your faith is meaningless because you're trusting in a guy who's six feet under and never rose from the dead. And as a result of that... You are still in your sins. Now, what does it mean to be still in your sins? He's bumping right up against the core gospel claim here. Because here is the gospel claim, gang, in case you've never heard it. The gospel simply says, and this is easy to remember, they're all S's, good alliteration here. The gospel says that we've all fallen into sin, sin creates separation from God. Jesus came to be our substitute through his substitution that God was then satisfied with us in relationship. And when you add all this together and believe it, you have a life of second chances because the God who has forgiven you and is now front and center in your life offers you every moment of every day, a lot of do-overs. He has wiped the slate clean in your life. Think about that. Sin does separate us from God. Everybody knows that. I mean, if there is a God, most of us at times, or maybe a lot, feel rather far from him. I own that in my own life. And the Bible has an explanation for that. It's sin. The fact that you're not perfect, I'm not perfect, but God is. Add that together. There's a gap there. That's what the Bible says And the reason that Jesus came to this world was, now watch this, to be our substitute in a very real way in both life and death. You're saying, what does that mean? Well, he lived a sinless life, the life that we are unable to live. He became our substitute in life, showing God that there is one who can live up up to his standards, and that's Jesus. And then, even more importantly, he became our substitute in death. He died the death that we should have died for our sin and bore our sin upon himself. Why? So that we might be forgiven by God. And when you believe that, the Bible says God is now satisfied. You're now in relationship with him And relationship with him, as Jeremiah says, means his mercies are new every morning. And he now is a God of do-overs, second chances, slate wiped clean for you. Paul's arguing here that, that, that if there is no resurrection, you're still in your sins. But the obvious implication here is there has been a resurrection. And so... For those who believe, they're no longer stuck without forgiveness of sin. God is now connected to you in a life-giving way. And he's a God of second chances riding point in your life. And you know, I know how some of you think. I've been around the block way too many times. For the first 18 years of my life, I didn't believe this stuff. And when people would try to explain the gospel to me like I just explained it to you, I'd be like, really? What have you been smoking? You're living in fantasy land. There's no way God could be that good. There's no way that God would send his son Jesus to do for me what I guess I can't do for myself. But it just sounds too good or even too easy. And I would still believe that if it wasn't for one thing. You ready for this? And that is how many times I have seen people like you, and even in my own life, place their faith in this resurrected Jesus and then experience radical life change. They experience these second chances. They experience the forgiveness of their sins. And the new lease that it gave them on life finally gave them hope to finally get a few things right. Let me put it pointedly. In 35 years of being a Christian, 30 years of being a pastor, I have seen chronic adulterers become joyfully monogamous, I have seen chronic liars learn to tell the truth. I've seen chronic stealers respect people's property. I've seen chronic rageaholics, usually in male form, learn to keep it under control to the point that even their wives and children like to be around them again. I've even seen chronic worriers learn to worry less and trust God. That was me. For the first 18 years of my life, I was just born this way, it's my temperament. I worried about everything. In fact, my dad, who has a warped sense of humor, once gave me a plaque for Christmas when I was about 16 years old. And I opened it up, and the plaque said, don't just sit there, worry. <laughs> I told you, I had a warped sense of humor. And my mom looked at him and said, Frank, that's not funny. And my dad said, it's hilarious. And, and, and so that's exactly right. And, and, and that's what I was known for. And, and again, it wasn't magical. It wasn't like the day I accepted Christ, all my worry went out the door. But over time... God who chips away at character, again, the God of second chances, allowed me over time to start to worry less and trust him more. You see, that's how it works. He's now front and center in your life. But again, the point is if there was no resurrection, what does it mean? If there's no resurrection, none of that garbage is true. Only a resurrection makes it true that he is who he said he is and that he's the God of second chances. Now, we're just ramping up here because that's the first point, but the resurrection of Jesus means even more than that. And so here's the second key thing our passage before us tells us, and I'll warn you, this takes it to a whole other level, literally, and that is that the resurrection of Jesus means eternity is real. It means eternity is real. Again, look at how our passage here reveals this to us. We read verse 17. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But then it goes on to say, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ will have perished. Now, some people think the Bible's harsh. I think it's actually a gentle book because it doesn't say here those who have croaked, or those who have died. It's kind of poetic and nice. Those who have fallen asleep. Do we all understand what that means? It means croaked, or those who have died. (laughs) It means those who have fallen asleep, even believing in Christ. Now this gets kind of harsh, have perished. What's it saying there? It's saying that if there is no resurrection, then those who have believed in Christ, when they die, will perish. That word perish is a fascinating term in the New Testament. Many of you might not know this, but the New Testament was originally written in Greek. So those of us who are pastors study it in the Greek. So I looked up that word in the Greek this week, perish, and it was actually a fascinating word. That word literally means to be no more. It means to not exist anymore. Paul's argument here is fascinating. He's saying if there is no resurrection, you ready for this? The atheists are right. If there's no resurrection, Dawkins and Hitchens are right. They're correct. Bertrand Russell is correct. Because if there is no resurrection, then when you die, it's just lights out six feet under. You exist no more. You have perished according to the text here that's the argument but obviously by implication let's reverse this Paul is arguing but there has been a resurrection and as a result of that those who die or fall asleep by believing in through believing in Christ will not perish kind of eerily similar to Jesus's words when he said for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life see this is paul's poetic way of saying that the resurrection means that eternity is real that this life we're just passing through it's 80 90 100 years at the most but if you bank on the resurrection this savior who came from you then eternity is going to be very real and it's going to be worth it no matter what you go through this side of heaven you know, Winston Churchill, the great prime minister of Britain who single handedly got Britain through World War II with his courage and his faith, was also a Christian man. I'm guessing he was Anglican, and most of them were back then, but he was definitely a believer. And he planned his own funeral, Winston Churchill did, because he knew that someday he would die. I guess he had listened to Billy Graham. Billy Graham once said that death is the most democratic experience in life because we're all gonna get a chance to participate. And so I guess Winston Churchill believed that. So he planned his own funeral, and sure enough, after he died, they had his funeral at St. Paul's Cathedral. And as you can imagine, being Anglican, there was impressive liturgy, and there were stately hymns, and it was a packed house. But Churchill had something planned at the end of the funeral that nobody saw coming. He had placed two buglers way in the rafters of St. Paul's Cathedral, one on one side and one on the other. And at the very end of his funeral, there was a pause, and one of the buglers started to play taps, Which, as many of you know, is the military sign that the day is over. Very fitting for a funeral. Your life is over, the day is over, let's play taps. And then there was a long pause, and there was another bugler placed high in the rafters. And after the long pause, the bugler started to play Reveille, the military wake-up call that the day is beginning. And it was Churchill's witty, artistic way of saying, though it's good night over here... It's good morning over there. And he got it right. And I will simply submit to you on this Easter day that the only reason Churchill could bank on something like that was because of Jesus' resurrection. C.S. Lewis, when he was alive, argued that the resurrection was the greatest miracle God could ever do to raise his son from the grave, and from that, all else flows. If there is no resurrection You're still in your sins, and there's no second chances. If there is no resurrection, forget about eternity. There is no such place, but there is a resurrection. So second chances abound. Eternity is real. And then lastly, notice with me that based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus means that hope is always available. Hope is always available to you and me. And you're saying, well, that sounds kind of vanilla. Hope is always available. I mean, I know that. I mean, we live in a world that talks about hope regularly. But let, let's look at how the text puts it here. One last time, uh, as we look at First Corinthians, look at how it wraps up. It says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died as we have seen. Now, understand what he's trying to say here. He, he's saying, because this is kind of brilliant, that if through faith in Jesus Christ, we have hope only in this life, because there is no resurrection, then we are of all people most to be pitied. And you're saying, well, wait a second, why would that be? He'd be saying, because you're just like everybody else in the world. You're just tapping into the hope that everybody else has. Kind of that benign, shallow, but I guess somewhat meaningful hope, right? So Gil's in the front row here, and if I said to Gil, hey dude, how you doing today? He might say, well, I hope that it rains tomorrow. That's how our world uses hope. Or I might say to Doc here, Doc, how you doing today? He might say, well, I hope the Cleveland Browns win a game this next season, just one. That would be a good hope to have. That's how we use the word hope in our daily language. Not bad, it's just the world's way of doing it. What Paul is arguing here is that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're people most to be pitied. Why? Because we're claiming to believe in Jesus and our hope goes no further than the weather and the Cleveland Browns. And though that's not bad, that's not much to brag about. But again, let's reverse this because that's the argument being made here. He's saying, but Christ has been raised from the dead and now hope is brought to a whole new level. Why? Because you got a God on your side who can raise his son from the dead. And I love this point. Could it be that he can also handle your life? Could it be that he can also handle your troubled marriage? your messed up finances, your depression and anxiety and fear, maybe how you're parenting your children, all the things that we deal with? Could it be that if he rose or raised Jesus from the dead, that your problems are not too much for him? And that at any given moment of every any given day, as you believe in him and his resurrected son, hope can be your friend. Now that's a different hope than we have in the weather or the Cleveland Browns. And that's the point, that only the resurrection enables you and I to have hope like that. Let's bring this all together. In the few moments we have remaining, I want to uh, share with you one story, a true story, of something that happened to me this week, and then we're gonna hear from one of our young people in a wonderful video story that uh, she's willing to share with us, and then we'll get you out of here for, for lunch or Christmas brunch, whatever, or Easter brunch, whatever you're going to. Wow. See, you guys got me thinking. I won't see some of you till Christmas. It's all your fault. <laughs> here's the uh, here's the backdrop to this story. In my house right now, we got three dogs living with us, and uh, of my three dogs, uh, two of them run from danger, and one of them runs to danger. Uh, The three dogs I have in my house right now are the two dogs that Kim and I own, and then my daughter is working uh, such hours that it's really hard for her to care for her dog, so we found it in a basket on our doorstep a few months ago, and we're now watching her dog. The two dogs that run from danger are actually opposite breeds. Uh, The one my daughter's dog is this little white thing that weighs about nine pounds. It's like a a Bichon-Poodle mix, and it has about the intelligence of a hamster, and yet it's... it's, (laughs) no really it's true but she is so sweet she's so loving and I said to Kim why do big guys like little dogs and she said because you want to protect them and she's right I I let this little thing sleep with us which the other two don't and you know I just protect her and then and then we got my, my wife's dog who is a beautiful 60 pound collie shepherd mix something like that we rescued her from a Native American reservation years ago and and she's super sweet but very fearful She might have been abused when she was younger but she tends to be afraid of her own shadow and certain men and yet she's so sweet but she's not known for her courage but she's a sweet dog and she sleeps right next to our bed on kim's side and then we have my dog and my dog is a 21 pound jack russell terrier do you know the breed (laughs) kim says it's the perfect dog for me he's small but he thinks he's like a doberman and he is fearless and he runs into danger and he is as tough as nails and you either love him or you don't but that's my little dog his name is Cooper and so we got Cooper on the right side of the bed Callie on the left side of the bed all on the ground and then this little white thing that's getting in between my wife and I lately and uh that's our household right now I got two dogs that run from danger and one that runs to danger how do I know that true story. Monday morning, uh, I woke up and I did my usual routine. I tell you guys, I always say a few prayers before I jump out of bed. And so I said my prayers and then I jumped out of bed and the dogs are all awake now because they get their good morning pepperoni in the morning. So they're all excited to get their, their morning pepperoni. And so as soon as I jumped out of bed, I turned on the light and I felt something swoosh by my head. And we had left the back door open to our deck and overnight a bat had come into our house seriously and this thing is flying around my head and and I look over and Kim and she had noticed it right away and she's diving under the covers and this is a true story the little white dog is diving under the covers and the big dog had jumped on the bed and was diving under the covers. I'm telling you I I got two dogs that run from danger and yet let me ask you what do you think the Jack Russell was doing? it was a beautiful sight to watch i mean this thing was on the prowl and it was running all over the bedroom and it was jumping it can jump about five feet and it was jumping up except this bat had wings it hadn't figured that out yet and it was flying all over the room and the jack russell's just on a mission to get that bat running right into danger rabies being bit other viruses he didn't care he's just going after this thing So I didn't want him to necessarily get it, so I went downstairs and I grabbed a broom and I was gonna come shoo the bat out and I came running back upstairs and Kim said, I think it's gone. She said, I I think it flew out because I don't see it anymore. And I looked around the room and I said, no, honey, the bat's not gone. Look, and my little Jack Russell Terrier was in the corner looking straight up into the drapes where the bat had flown. And the bat had flown into the fold of the drapes and he was just eyeballing that thing as his next meal. It'd be like a pepperoni and bat breakfast. And so I didn't, somebody asked me last night, did you touch the bat? I'm not an idiot, no. I, I went over and I just, I just sort of rolled the drapes up so the bat couldn't get out. Kim came out and helped me take the drapes down. I went onto our deck and I just shooed the bat. And even then it wasn't over because I shooed the bat and it fell on the ground and it froze and the Jack Russell started making a beeline right for that bat and I had to grab him from running into danger again. I got three dogs. Two of them run from danger, one runs into danger. Why is that important? I want you to think right now of the closest people in your life. I'm guessing that out of the closest friends and family members, spouses, kids that you have in your life, maybe your parents, you have at least a few of them that would run into danger for you. Could you agree with that? You never really know until it happens but I think most of us are blessed with maybe just one or two, maybe three or four people that would be willing to run into danger for us. And we, we call ourselves blessed because we have them in our lives. <laughs> the rest of them are going to be like my other two dogs. They love you. They're going to wait for you to do something for them, but they're going to run at the first sight of danger. But you have a few people that will run into danger for you. Here's the problem with that, if there is any part of the problem with it is that it's one thing for them to run into danger for you on a physical level. Maybe give you money when you need it, a kidney if you needed it, just doing something to help you. But because they're human and because they're fallen and because they're imperfect as well, there's only so much they can do for you. Life can be pretty lonely. And yet what you need to hear today, because this I can promise you, there's a lot of things I don't know, but I know this. If jesus rose from the dead and i believe that he did then you have one who has run into danger for you and will continue to and will never let you down i want you to think about what he's done for you this jesus this might blow your mind but have you ever wondered what god did before he created the world before he created humankind The Bible tells us God existed before creation. So, what did he do? Theologians ask questions like that. It's actually not hard to answer. That's where the Trinity becomes so important. If God exists as a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then what theologians tell us is that he has existed for all of eternity, watch this, as a mutual satisfying Trinity in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and the Spirit, for all of eternity. In other words, he didn't need us to be satisfied. He's God. But because he loves you and he loves me, he did make this world. He created us in his image. And when we fell from our lofty created place, when we sinned, he decided to break the Trinity and send Jesus to this earth. That's what happened 2,000 years ago. And the richness in that is that Jesus left the Trinity to go into danger for you. You're saying, how is it dangerous? Well, you ever read the gospels? He was ridiculed, beaten, spit upon, disbelieved as the son of God. And then that's just ramping up. Eventually he was arrested by his own kind. He was then beaten some more and eventually hung on a wooden cross to die. You know, we've made crosses so nice today, haven't we? We make them into little necklaces and have them in our house. And that's wonderful because it's a symbol of our faith. But you need to know that that's not what a cross started out as. Back then, the cross was a symbol of death. It's what you reserve for the worst criminals. And that's what they hung Jesus on for his painful death. The Bible says that that was all by design. It was about Jesus going into a dark place for you. He went into danger for you as he bore your sin upon himself. That's how much he loves you. And then get this. Have you ever wondered why he was crucified and then three days later was raised from the dead. You ever wondered that? Like, why didn't you just rise from the dead five minutes later? Like, it would have been the same thing, except for one thing. The Bible says he went down into hell for you, defeated the powers of darkness, defeated your worst nightmare. He went into dangerous places for you and then rose from the dead. And it doesn't stop there. That's all that just happened 2,000 years ago. Here's what he does today. Even if you don't believe yet here today, he's tapping on your shoulder all the time. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be a pastor. I'd hang it up tomorrow. Every one of you, he's tapping on your shoulder. Cactus and venue, chapel, high school room, he's tapping on your shoulder. And he's tapping on your shoulder saying, I'm alive. I rose from the dead. I love you. And I've gone into dangerous places for you. And I'm willing to do it for the rest of your life. Turn and believe in me. And when you do, here's what you're gonna find. (laughs) You got second chances in your life, loads of them. Eternity is gonna start to look real and hope is gonna be your friend all because of a resurrected Jesus who's willing to go into danger for you still and will never leave you, never forsake you. He's that good. And it all hinges on what we're celebrating here today. Let's listen to Ann right now. She's one of our young people in the church. You know, the Bible said that sometimes it needs to come out of the mouth of babes. Sometime a little child will lead them. Anne's not a little child anymore, but she's a lot younger than we are. So let's listen to her and let her tell you in her, her words what the Lord has done for her. And then we'll wrap things up here. Okay.
1: I grew up in a kind of a small town, I was an only child, and our home was a, a Christian home, but I didn't personally know Christ on a relational level. I was really involved in sports and just in, in my academics and always strove to be the best person that I could be. I took that a little too much to heart. Um, I started putting pressure on myself. I had anxiety, panic attacks. I just started to, to not be able to function. It felt like everybody was looking at me. It intensified the anxiety and I I even ended up going to some therapists. My parents couldn't really help and nobody really understood. The panic attacks and anxiety got worse. It left me completely helpless. I didn't know where to turn to. I was walking into church on Sunday just like I normally did with my parents and a song came on and um, one of the verses was, I raise my white flag and I surrender all to you, all for you. Like God, if, you, if you're there, I need you because I have nowhere else to turn and I need your help. I just, I felt the Holy Spirit enter my heart. and knew at that moment that he, he loved me and he was so much bigger um, than, than any of my anxiety. That was the day that I had fully accepted Christ, not only that he existed, but as my savior. Life kind of um, was strictly uphill since from that point. Um, School was going well and I had basketball scholarships and um, I had stayed late to help some some girls with their shooting. Little did I know, leaving the parking lot, that somebody was going to run through the red light at full speed and and, um, they T-boned me on the driver's side. I remember hearing them cut me out of the car. Um, My neck had to be stabilized. I basically broke every bone on the left side of my body from my jaw to my pelvis. My bladder and my kidney had holes in them and they were bleeding internally. So um, they rushed me into emergency surgery. I felt God had personally challenged me by saying, if you rely on me through this, then I'm gonna bring you through. I'd be lying if I said there weren't days where I was just completely discouraged tons of physical therapy and I couldn't eat. Um, But I'd also be lying if I said I didn't experience more joy than I had ever experienced in my entire life. That the Lord was gonna use my circumstances for my good and for the good of others. God is always good and he's always faithful. No matter if he presents himself in circumstances that are hard The resurrection of Jesus, it really represents to me the new life that he offers. He offered me a new life, that I get to wake up and experience that that new life. And I'm so grateful for his resurrection from the cross and for Easter because I now get to have him in my heart every day. And that's one of the most beautiful things to
0: Francis Schaeffer was one of the better philosophers of the last century, and he once said that as you consider any worldview out there, it better meet two criteria it better be rational and it better be livable. And when I hear Anne's story, I'm moved in the deepest parts of my mind and heart because I see a young gal whom looked at life and all of its difficulty, whether it be anxiety or that terrible accident, and she looked at what God was offering her and said, it makes sense. It's rational. I get it. It makes sense for me. And then as she bore witness to, it's eminently livable. It worked for her. There's both a reasonable and a pragmatic approach to how we analyze worldviews. All I've been trying to do with all of you here today is simply this, to help you see that as we look at the resurrection, it means something if we choose to believe. It means something when it comes to how we interface with God and each other, when it comes to hope, eternity, second chances, forgiveness, this new lease on life that many of us desire in our heart of hearts. So for those of you who believe, then I hope you walk out of here today and at the other venues and campuses with like, hey, I'm on the right path. God is on my side. I'm walking with him, even through the ups and downs, the resurrection means everything. And if you don't believe, then hopefully we've given you something to chew on. And maybe today you've met Schaefer's two criteria. Maybe today it makes sense and you know it's gonna work. And if that's you today, then let's pray right now for you to receive Christ. So let's all bow together as we close our service time. God, I thank you, I for one, for the resurrection of Jesus. And God, I thank you that though for the first 18 years of my life, I could have parroted back what the resurrection is about factually, that Lord, for the last 35 or so years, you've helped me to have some meaning behind it. And Lord, that meaning has come because I've turned to you and believed in what you have said and what you have done. And Lord, there's some here today and then also watching at our other venues and campuses that are are ready to believe as well. They're ready to turn from the things in this world and look to you and become, have you become for them what the Bible says, the author and perfecter of their faith. And so Lord, right where they sit, they pray a prayer like this. They say, oh God, thank you that you came for me. Thank you that even in my sin and separation, you sent Jesus to be my substitute in life and death, paying the price I couldn't pay, and that, Lord, that was satisfying to you. And God, through Jesus, I believe and trust. I I trust in his atoning work. I trust in his presence in my life. I trust in his resurrection from the dead. And I place my faith and hope in him. Father, I pray that as anybody would pray that prayer here today, that they would know that they have crossed over a line that will carry them the rest of their lives because you will now carry them. And that, Lord, you love them. You'll never leave them and forsake them. And that they might mark today as their spiritual birthday. Father, I pray for the rest of us who are still on the journey. God, just continue to hound us as the hound of heaven, reminding us around each corner that you're real and that you love us and that you're never going to give up on us. I thank you for that hope, and I pray these things. We all pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name, and we say together, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day, and happy Easter.